Hey, I wanted to remind you that uh, one of our artists is putting together some artwork that is compatible with our series, and, and you'll find it uh, around here at the front, and you're more than welcome to take a look at that and enjoy it. It kind of speaks as well. You know, pictures oftentimes speak in powerful words, so enjoy yourself and take a look at that. Well, when I was a student, I absolutely panicked whenever the teacher got up and announced that we were going to have a pop quiz. The color would go out of my face and my armpits would turn into Niagara Falls. I mean, I would just sweat. I've never been good at tests, but a a pop quiz was like the worst thing of all. Well, I I just want you to relax uh, this weekend here at 111th campus, but we're going to have a prophecy pop quiz, okay? And I I don't want you to worry about it. I want you to participate in it. You can cheat, okay? And it's multiple choice, and you're going to need your, your cell phone if you really want to participate in this. So believe it or not, I'm encouraging you at both campuses to use your cell phone, but you can turn the ringer off because you'll be texting, And if you didn't bring one or you're against using one in the church, whatever your issue is, you can just write your letters down, your answer down on a sheet of paper and participate that way. But we're going to kind of compute it and see how the class average is at both campuses. And if you do well, then there'll be no sermon after the service. All right? If you don't do well, well, that's the way it goes. All right? So uh, have your your, uh, cell phone ready. And you can text it uh, to the number that you're going to see on the screen. And then you'll find that there's a key word next to each answer. And when you see that key word, all you have to do is simply, uh, you know, type in the key word and you'll be ready to go. And we're doing this live at at, at both campuses, so uh, be ready. All right, so take your Bibles out now and your cell phone and turn open to Daniel chapter 8. As we continue to move through our series, Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. It begins this way, Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, stand beside the Ulai River. All right, here is the first question in our pop quiz. Belshazzar was the grandson of what famous king? And you've got four options. Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, or Henry VIII. Okay, so text the number in and text in then what you think is the answer. Some of you must have gotten the notes already because you're cheating. You're way ahead. All right, either that or you're geniuses or you don't want to stay around for an extra sermon, all right? So see how we're doing here, how we're doing on our 11th campus? And the answer is yes, all right, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Now, that was just an easy question to get you primed, okay? It's going to get harder as we move along. Now, why does God take Daniel in this dream to Susa, because, I mean, Susa is a, is a city that, that's outside of, of Babylon. It's a, a, a no-name city at that, at that point in time. The reason God takes him there is because God is going to introduce him to the capital of the next empire that's going to replace Babylon. 
And that brings us to the second question of our pop quiz. And that is, Susa was the capital of which great world empire? And this time you have three choices. Greece, Rome, or Persia. So text it in. What do you think? Greece, Rome, or Persia? Susa was the capital of which great world empire? I feel better with that. I think we're going to be spending a lot of time in the sermons, but maybe I'm wrong. What do you think it is, 111th? What is the answer? Susa, Greece, Rome, Persia. Okay, if you said, yeah, see, people are like, oh, I think that's what he really meant. Okay, all right, so uh, Persia is the winner, all right? It was, uh, it was the capital of Persia. See, I thought it was the Medes and the Persians. Well, it was, but the Persians eventually absorbed the Medes and became known as Persia. Now, in Daniel's dream, as we've noticed, he saw an animal. He saw a ram. And uh, the ram had two horns. Now, we talked a while back about the meaning of horns in prophecy. And so the next question of pop quiz is this. In prophecy, what do horns often represent? You've got four options. Strength, a musical instrument... Pride, none of the above, all right? Strength, a musical instrument, pride, none of the above. How are you doing at 111th? Moving the bars, what do you think it is? You want to stay for an extra sermon? Think you got it right? All right, very good job, okay? It stands for strength. So it stands for a world power, a world ruler. And in this case, the ram represents the Medes and the Persians, now Persia, and it just it has such great strength and such great power. And the horns represented the Medo-Persian end of it. And I already told you the Persians kind of took over. And in his vision, not only does he see this ram, but then all of a sudden he sees this goat. And the goat has one horn. And the goat is so fast that its feet don't even touch the ground. And it takes aim at the ram, and with that one horn, it rams right into the ram and kills it, does away with it completely. And of course, we know it represents the next world empire. So here's the next question. What nation does the goat represent? And you've got four choices. Rome, Egypt, Greece, or Israel. Text in the keyword that you think it represents. What did the goat represent? Rome, Egypt, Greece, or Israel? What do you think? Both campuses. All right. What does the goat represent? What does the goat represent? Rome, Egypt, Greece, or Israel? (laughs) Rome, Egypt, Greece, or Israel? I think we'll be staying after for a little bit of work, all right? It represents Greece, right? Where have you been all my life on the weekends, all right? Remember Babylon? Remember the lion? And then remember, oh, it's because the animals got mixed up. Well, they always did in in Daniel's visions. Then came Medo-Persia. Then came Greece and Alexander the Great, all right? Now, I can understand how you got that mixed up. But he represents that one horn. So what happens as Daniel watches this dream and watches this vision is the camera kind of tightens its shot. 
And what takes place here is what we know from history. And what we know from history is that Alexander the Great led his empire, devoured the whole earth, conquered all other world rulers, and then Alexander the Great, represented by that horn, Alexander the Great dies. When he dies, his empire is left to four of his generals, which are like four horns that Daniel sees. And then from one of those horns, it says, there came a little horn, and that little horn becomes a great horn. So what's that all about? Let's take a look at it together. Back to Daniel chapter 8, and let's pick it up in verse 9. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn, whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east, toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens, where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? The other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. Last question on the pop quiz. Who is the personality, this little horn that becomes the large horn, who is that personality who challenges God and his people? A, is it the Antichrist? B, is it Antiochus Epiphanes? C, is it A and B or none of the above? All right, so text in is the last one. You've done pretty good so far, except on one of the questions. Uh, Do you think it's the Antichrist? Do you think it's Antiochus Epiphanes? Do you think it's A and B? Or do you think it's none of the above? What do you think? Do you think it could be A and B? Or do you think it's none of the above? What do you think the answer is? Do you think it could be A and B? Because if you do, you're right. Okay? That's the answer. I hope you guys did really well. 111th on the pop quiz. Because I know here at Hobson they'll be staying after for a couple of sermons, all right? But seriously, it is both and. It is a picture of Antiochus Epiphany. Say, who is he? Hang on, I'll tell you in a minute. And the Antichrist. And one of the things I want us to do is learn that sometimes in prophecy, a person or event that's mentioned can actually have a double meaning. In other words, enough can be said about that person or that event that you can look through history, you can look at the natural progression of the scripture and say, I know who that is because he fits or it fits that event that happened in history. It just, it just makes total sense. But then sometimes more is added, into it, added to it that causes you to scratch your head and say, now wait a minute, 
I, I mean, this fits really well right here, but, but there's more said about that person or more said about that event. It, it can't just be that. And that's the whole point. A lot of times God gives us an example of what is to come or God allows something here on earth in terms of a personality or an event to be a picture a type of what is going to happen in the future. And that's exactly what we have going on here. So I want to first of all talk about the historical aspect of this. Daniel was foreseeing in the future what we look back at and see as a historical person and a historical event. And that is a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you go back to our uh, four horns over here, and the horn that becomes small, that comes out of one of those dynasties, becomes small, and it becomes a great horn. We know from history that one of the dynasties, called the Seleucid dynasty, named after the general who took over that particular part of the territory, had a king, a descendant, an eighth king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He took on the term Epiphanes, which means God manifests. So uh, he had a little ego uh, to see himself as kind of God manifest. And he dreamed of reuniting the entire empire and being as great as Alexander the Great was. And so he went to war and he was a ruthless, shrewd fellow and he began defeating different people and different groups and nations. And he set his sight on Israel, the beautiful or the glorious land. And he had a desire. And his desire was to unify the empire, to get everybody to adapt to the Greek religion, right? And also Greek culture. In other words, make everybody say or speak the same language and believe the same kind of religion will be okay. And so he threatened the Jews. And many of the Jews capitulated. Many of the Jews said, you know, we don't want to lose our lives. We don't want trouble. So, all right, we'll play your game. We'll adopt your culture, specifically your language, and maybe even adopt your religion. But there were other Jews who refused to do it. They were not going to forsake their, their God, and they were not going to forsake their culture at all. And he turns against them. And historians tell us that about 80,000 Jews were killed. And over 40,000 were sold into slavery. And this just went on. It was relentless. He actually goes into the temple and he sets up an image to the god Zeus. And he sacrifices. Imagine this. The temple of God. And he sacrifices on the sacred altar a swine and spills out its blood and sprinkles it all over the temple, both as a way to infuriate the Jews and also as a way to say, you will worship my gods and you will follow my system and you'll follow my ways. And in the passage I read, we overheard in heaven, in this dream, one individual speaking to another, two angelic beings speaking to each other, saying, how long is this going to go on? How long is this going to be allowed to last? And the other one says, 2,300 days and evenings. Well, what's so fascinating, which makes God's word so relevant, we know it's inspired, because Daniel's looking down the tunnel of history. He's looking down at time that hasn't even happened yet. We know that Antiochus Epiphanes attacked 
the Jews in approximately 171 BC, and in December of 165 BC, he was defeated by a Jew by the name of Judas the Hammer Maccabee. And that's 2,300 days to the moment the temple was rededicated, and Jews today celebrate it in the festival of what? Of Hanukkah. That's how they celebrate it. It's a great story. You can read it online or pick up your history book, but it's a, it's a powerful, powerful story. So that's the historical event. That's the first fulfillment that Daniel is looking at. It just makes sense. However, there's more said about it that causes us to scratch your head and say, but it, it's, more than just, it's more than just that person, Antiochus Epiphanes. This seems to be pointing to something else. So let's go back to Daniel. And let's pick it up in verse 17 where the angel Gabriel is now explaining to Daniel what he's seen. Verse 17, it says, excuse me, as Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. There's the first clue. He's saying that these events that you've just seen actually relate further beyond what we know of Antiochus' epiphanies toward the end. While he was speaking, he said, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. But Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. Then he said, I'm here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. So again, it goes beyond the historical event we were just talking about. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time, to the culmination of world history. Now, he gives the explanation that we've already looked at. The two-horned ram represents the king of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. See, there was the answer. Um, And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but one as great, but none as great as the first. At the end of the rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. Here you have Antiochus Epiphanes, but he's a type of or a picture of the one that will rise at the end of time, who we know of, one of his names of scripture, as the Antichrist. Verse 24, he will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. Now, not by his own power, shocking amount. Now we're looking beyond Antiochus. Now we're looking at the Antichrist who is empowered by Satan himself. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He'll be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, our Lord Jesus Christ. But he will be broken, though not by human power. Antiochus, though God, I know, orchestrated it, was broken by Judas Maccabee. The Antichrist will be defeated by God himself. This vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true. But none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep this vision a secret. So it's true, this happened in Tychus Epiphanes, but it's a picture of what is yet to come. And one of the reasons we know this is pointing to the future 
are some words that our Lord Jesus Christ spoke when he was talking about the future in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Jesus said, The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Remember the uh, idol of Zeus. So Jesus lived well after, on earth in human form, lived well after Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's saying that wasn't the total fulfillment. Jesus is saying, look ahead, look to the future. That's a type of fulfillment. One day the Antichrist is going to come, and you're going to see and experience the real deal when it takes place. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is, what is God teaching us about the Antichrist? What is God showing us? What's he revealing to us about the end times? We've already learned that the Antichrist is going to be a character that has a dynamic rule. And we also have learned that the Antichrist is going to have a deceptive rule. But what we learn from this passage is that the Antichrist is going to attack God's people. His system and his very being is going to launch out and strike out at God's people, the Jewish people, and believers, Christians. Why? Because we stand in the way of his master plan. And what is his master plan? His master plan is to unite the world under his authority to give worship to him, ultimately to Satan himself. That's his plan. That's his deal. And just like Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to unite the empire by getting them to all speak one language and to worship one system of gods and follow one way of thinking and basically look to him as God, the Antichrist has to find a way to manipulate the masses of the world to look to him and him alone. And for Christians and for Jews who hold to one God and one God only, that's the problem. He's got to get rid of that God. And for those of us who hold to the scriptural truth, the the biblical truth of the Bible, who stake our lives on that moral absolute, he's got to get rid of that. He's got to somehow, he's got to somehow take us and manipulate us, threaten us to follow his system. And we've been talking about this for weeks now. And one of the ways that he's going to do that, if you read the scriptures carefully, is going to be by means of the economy. If you can get control of the currency, if you can get control of the economy, you can control the people. You can threaten the people as a result. And the Bible talks about this in the book of Revelation in terms of the mark of the beast, 666. I'm going to say more about that in the weeks to come. But that number 666 simply represents a human attempt to organize the nations, to organize the people toward a certain end, a certain result, which is the worship of man, the acceptance of the Antichrist. He say, that sounds so far-fetched. Do you honestly believe that somebody could take and manipulate the currency and manipulate the economy and get us all on the same page and, and threaten us by saying, if you don't have a certain identification, if you don't have a certain mark that you can't buy, and you can't sell it? Do you really think? I mean, that just sounds far-fetched, Pastor. Well, listen to this. I got an email this week from somebody in our 
congregation, attends our congregation, and they shared something with me which I thought was fascinating. I want you to listen. He said to me, I can tell you as someone established in the rigors of economics and finance that the one world currency proposal makes incredible sense if your goal is stable economic and financial system. In an article that appeared in The Economist last month, it talks about how difficult it has been to accurately provide identification numbers to people in India as the population is larger than could be handled. However, a new database has been developed that could provide human ID numbers for the entire world population. With this, all the people of India are receiving these human ID numbers. The thought is that, excuse me, the thought is that when complete, currency can be eliminated as everyone can trade using their number. I thought I would share the article with you. And uh, he is one of the associate deans at the University of Chicago Business School. So this isn't, you know, coming off the back of a cereal box or some bizarre website where somebody's writing weird stuff. This is somebody from a prestigious organization, school of business, saying, yeah, the world's going that direction. It's all being set up, and it only takes a mastermind to manipulate it. And pretty soon, when you walk in the grocery store and you walk back out, you don't need a wallet. You just need your little uh, chip all right, on your clothes or embedded someplace, and it just totally scans you and everything you have, and it's just taken out of your account. And guess what? You don't have it, you don't get it. And, and it's, you know, it's just being all set up in our day and age. The manipulation is there. A second thing that we learn here is that there will be a time of tribulation for God's people. A time of difficulty and suffering. And God seems to allow it. Remember when we were reading the passage earlier, it said to us that there was a time lag that the heaven's armies were restrained. What's that all about? You know, there's nothing like a crisis. There's nothing like a little bit of hardship and persecution to separate real Christians from those who are just playing the game. And there are a lot of folks who are playing the game today. And the reality is, if push came to shove, if in order to be accepted by others, in order to be loved by others, in order to be able to wheel and deal and trade, I had to adopt a different God, or I had to buy into a different system, they would jump ship right now. You don't have to wait till you get there, by the way. You know, we face that in our culture all the time because the spirit of Antichrist is very much alive in our world right now. Our youth face that all the time at school. If you really want to belong to the club, you want to be part of us, they're constantly facing peer pressure. Then compromise your morals, compromise your beliefs, compromise your convictions, and then you can be in the in-group. And there's a price to pay when you say, no, I don't want to do that. Sometimes the price is loneliness. Sometimes the price is you lose your job. Sometimes the price is you don't get an advance. Sometimes the price is ridicule and being made fun of. And that's, that's when we got to ask ourselves, who do I believe in? What do I stand for? And we're such wimpy Americans. You know, there's a part of us that says, oh, I don't want to go through anything like that. I just can't believe God would ask me to go through something like that. Look at the rest of the world. I eat dinner with pastors in Vietnam who spent years in prison being tortured, being starved, being beaten. The communist government trying to get them to say, okay, all right, I won't. I'll give in. I won't teach God. I'll, I'll be an atheist. But they refuse to do it. 
because they're so convicted in who God is and who Christ is and what Christ came to do. And they're convicted about the truth of God's word. And today there's something so powerful taking place in China and other places in Southeast Asia. They've been under communist dominance. God's spirit is alive there. I want you to know that this weekend. God's spirit is alive in countries where persecution has been the mode of operation for years. Because his people are taking a stand for him. And it wouldn't surprise me if our nation eventually goes through some very, very difficult times. And maybe that's what we need to shake the church up and cause us to truly be his witness and make a difference in this world. The question then becomes, how should we respond to this? What should our response be? I want you to look at at Daniel's response in verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up and formed my duties to the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Chapter 9. He says in verse 2, During the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord, as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet, that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. Now, what that means is Daniel is looking at the prophet Jeremiah, and he reads you know, that Israel is being on timeout, being punished by God for 70 years. And Daniel knows the 70 years are about up. And so he goes into a time of intense prayer fasting. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, you are great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep the promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. Come to verse 8. O Lord, we and our kings, princes, and ancestors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. Verse 10. We've not obeyed the Lord our God, for we have not followed the instruction he gave us to his service, the prophets. All Israel has disobeyed your instruction and turned away, refusing to listen to your voice. So now the solemn curses and judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because of our sin. Verse 17. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead for your own sake, Lord. Smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Oh, my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea, not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, hear, oh, Lord, forgive, oh, Lord. Listen and act for your own sake. Do not delay, oh, my God, for your people and your city bear your name. Man, Daniel just moves into a passionate time of prayer as he sees all that God says is ahead. And as he thinks about his people, he's praying that they will repent and return to God and not repeat the same sins again that they've repeated in the past. And the question I want to ask you that I've been asking myself is, as we read prophecy, as we read what God has to say about the end, what does it move you to do? What does it move me to do? One of the things that saddens me is how oftentimes in Christianity, passages like that, you know, teaching on prophecy in the scripture, moves us into arguments. It moves us into certain views or theological perspectives about the end times. Because there's a lot about prophecy that's vague, and we like to fill in the blanks. We type A people. We want to figure the whole system out. And then what we do is we say, I got my system, and this is how God's going to turn it all out. And this is the way it's going to be. 
And of course, it's the right way, so all of you need to believe it. And I'm just going to teach, 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 preach, preach, preach until you're convinced it's my way. And somebody else goes, no, you're wrong. It's this way. You have to believe it this way. And somebody else says, no, no, it's this way. And we become like Pharisees. We take the word of God and we just mince it and dice it and divide it and chop it up. And we create our own little systems and ideas. And I remember Jesus got a little disgusted with the Pharisees. Because they took the plain truth and they made it so complicated. So people say, I'm pre-trib. No, I'm mid-trib. I'm pre-rap. I'm post-trib. I'm pre-mill. I'm a-mill. I'm post-mill. The Antichrist is a Jew. No, the Antichrist is a Gentile. A thousand years is literal. No, the thousand years is symbolic. Israel is no longer the people of God. The church is the true Israel. And you know, the common person sits back and they listen to all that and they go, man, if you guys don't figure it out and can't agree, I'm not even going to try to read it. And I just have to believe that God did not give us his word to confuse us or divide us. I think it's okay to study it and come up with your opinions all you want, but there's enough said in prophecy for you to understand it, believe it, and obey it. It's right there. And we need to get on the same page. We need to read it and see what God is saying is the end is coming. You need to have your faith in God's words. You need to have your faith in my son because you're entering into days of deception. Stop arguing about my word and obey my word. And Daniel went to prayer. And when Daniel went to prayer, folks, he went to prayer with great passion. And he cried out to God. And there are two things that Daniel, that Daniel prays about. First of all, he prays that God's people will stop conforming to the culture around them. That's what got them into trouble. I want to say to you right now that one of the great concerns I have is how the American church is compromising and conforming to the culture. And it should grieve our hearts. It should grieve our hearts to think that Christians would write books and churches would preach and say that sexuality can be redefined. That people would preach and say to us that the Christianity is all about prosperity and getting healthy and getting rich. That people would get up and talk to us and preach about how the fact that a woman can make her own choice, that, that abortion is okay. That people would get up and they would preach and, and that they would teach and tell us that, you know, the Bible has to be kind of redefined every once in a while. That it's getting a little bit outdated and that, you know, there are many ways to heaven that other good religious people are going to get there. Well, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Why would God have his son die on the cross if there are other ways of salvation? And yet that's what's going on today. And it should grieve our hearts. You know, when Daniel prayed, did you notice he said, we have sinned? Do you know why he said that? Because he was a man of integrity. Why did he say, we have sinned? Because Daniel didn't see himself as an individual. Daniel saw himself with a corporate identity of the Jewish people. And what he saw them doing hurt him so deeply that he identified with it. Do you know that the body of Christ is supposed to be one corporate body? That we're not supposed to be individuals? That you and I belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And when we see the church of Jesus Christ in error. When we see certain parts of the church of Jesus Christ saying and doing foolish things and compromising. It ought to be a stab in our gut. It ought to be like a punch in our stomach that takes the wind out of us. That causes us to get on our knees and say, oh God. How can the redemptive community of the world be like this? God, get our hearts, get our minds. God, forgive us, convict us. But you know what we do? We get before God and we say, no, God, please don't let me lose my house, my car. 
God, don't let me lose my standard of living. God, don't let me lose my comfortable lifestyle. And I understand we need to pray some of those prayers and ask God to intervene in our life. But folks, it's not about me. It's not about my life. It's about reaching out to the lives around us. And the church today is so apathetic about lost people. Do you understand the days of deception that are coming through this world? Do you understand that? Do you understand what your children and grandchildren are going to face? We need to wake up and, re- to, we need to wake up and just say, I'm not going to be apathetic anymore. I'm not just going to play ho-hum Christianity anymore. That's why I want you here on Wednesdays to pray. We've got to pray a revival into God's church here, near, and far. And get serious about it. And we sang a song, I don't know, a couple of months ago that just touched my heart. And it talks about, I'm not going to pray empty prayers anymore. I'm going to start praying to make a difference. Because I still believe that this nation could turn around. I still believe that we could have revival. But it's not going to be up to Washington. And it's not going to be up to any political group. I'm telling you right now, it's going to be up to a church that wakens up and says, no more compromise, and it says, no more apathy, and begins living redemptively. Amen? That's what it's all about. So I want you to stand with me, and I I want us to close the song. If you don't know it, listen on, catch on. But the words are powerful. It's upbeat. It reminds us that we need to be be fervent in our, our faith and fervent in our prayers and expect that God is going to do great things.